Welcome to the Unveiling Grace podcast, a place to experience a grace that heals. Allow this grace to take your life and your relationships to another level as it frees you from the weight of performance-based religion. Enjoy another episode as Joel Groh and Lynn Wilder share encouraging stories and candid dialogue that can help you experience a grace that heals. So welcome back to another Unveiling Grace podcast. We're excited to have you with us. We're excited to share stories, scripture, anything that's designed to help your life flourish in Jesus and to help you experience a grace that heals. I'm Joel Grote. And I'm Lynn Wilder. And we are here today with a pastor. That's kind of unusual. Uh, This is John Benzinger with a church in Gilbert, Arizona called Redeemer Bible Church. Um, Great place. I love this place. We've been here a number of times. John has a real heart for folks in performance-based religion. We wanted to talk today, well, I guess we should let John tell us a little bit about how he came to know the Lord and why you're doing what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah, so I um, grew up in a Christian home, so I heard Bible stories from my earliest times. I've been told that I was sung to and the Bible was read to me when I was in the womb. And so grew up going to church many times, praying prayers, walking aisles, even got baptized when I was 13. But... um, Coming to understand the truth of the gospel, now looking back, I don't think I was really saved until I was 18 years old. Um, At that point, my life changed. At that point, God became very real. And at that point, the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of His indwelling presence started coming out of my life. And so um, at 18, so before that, starting about 13, I wanted to help people with my life. I thought that was going to be in the area of psychology. So throughout all of junior high, high school, and then even in my first, my first years of college, I was focused on becoming a psychologist. I got into UCLA psych program. That's the direction I was going to go. I even had my internships lined up once I got out. But then I was on my way to uh, pick up food for my family at KFC. I was about 19, (laughs) 20 years old. I'm in the drive-thru and I'm listening to preaching and that pastor asked a question on the radio. He was talking about psychology and he just said, why not give people eternal help? And for whatever reason, that that question Hmm. struck me like a bolt of lightning. And I I can honestly say I entered the drive-thru wanting to be a psychologist and left the drive-thru thinking I'm going to be a pastor. And so so here I am today, now some 20 years after that moment. And um, that ended up actually, those initial thoughts ended up being true. So I've been the pastor here now for just uh, just under four, just about four and a half years. Okay. And so uh, it's been a pretty remarkable journey since then. Fantastic. One of the things I love about Pastor John is he's such a good Bible teacher, right? He makes the word come to life. Um, and I think that's probably why your church is just expanding like crazy. People are hungry for the word. That's what we found here is people are very hungry for the Bible. And um, it's been a it's been a really interesting ride just briefly here at Redeemer Bible Church. We um, I got here about uh, in, in August of 14. I was the interim pastor. There are about 200 people here. 
and um, between August of 14 and March of 15, did such a good job that the church grew from 200 to 90. And then the church was, the church was, so, the church was so impressed with that that they asked me to be the lead pastor at that point. But from that, from that point wow. in, in March of 15 until now, to, so, and when we're recording this in, in what, October of 19. So in that amount of time, we grew from about 900, from, from 90 to 900 in that short amount of time. And Praise so things God. Have, things have exponentially grown here. Um, and it's been, it's kind of like a, got, got a tiger by the tail. It's just going wherever it wants to go. And we're just kind of holding on for dear life. So it's been super fun, exciting, also very stretching in a lot of different ways. But we're in Gilbert, Arizona. And for me, that means three things. That means Hispanic people. That's our mission field. It means um it means people come here to retire. So it is, it's people in their, in the last quarter of their lives and it's Catholics and Mormons. This is, this is a massive population of those two people. So that's how okay. I, those, those three, really four, I guess, um, that would be the mission field that I kind of see God placing this church right in the middle of. And so for me, um, performance based, like you said, but specifically ministry to Mormons is, is really at a close place in my heart. I've noticed that Christians here, because we're in such a heavily saturated Mormon area, that there's kind of this us versus them mentality, not seeing them as a mission field. Um, and so I'm, I'm praying that God will continue to use this church to see the people here see our Mormon friends as neighbors, as a mission field that we can help love, no, come to know, love, and serve Jesus. So Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a cool perspective to have because as we've been both Lynn and I have been involved in Mormon ministry more and more we're trying to encourage people to do exactly that the Mormon or the person in any different religious tradition whether it's Mormon Hindu Buddhist yeah. you name it they're not our enemy they're our neighbor in fact mm -hmm. Jesus uses the Samaritan paradigm when he tells the story of who's my neighbor who does he make the hero of the story he makes a Samaritan which was kind of like a Mormon to a Jew it was somebody yeah. who would didn't share the same faith, um, had some things that were in conflict doctrinally and even historically, and yet Jesus says, hey, the Samaritan is the hero in the story. Um, so Serve them. Exactly. Yeah. And Love I think them. Christians struggle because there are a lot of texts that talk about rebuking the false teachers and being... Um, harsh and being and and doing that and being commanded that like in the book of titus titus chapter 1 verse verses uh 10 to 16 and the rest but what christians need to understand is that we're that, that we're, we're not we're not dealing with joseph smith or any of the prophets when we're talking to our neighbors we're talking to to our neighbors we're not talking right. to the false teacher we're not talking to the false prophet himself we're talking to our neighbors and our neighbors that shift has to happen in our hearts saying no these are the neighbors i'm to to get to know and to love them and to show them Christ. Right. They're not a it's, wolf, they're a lost sheep. Exactly. Yeah, our, our third son literally became born again to the Jesus of the Bible while on a Mormon mission by reading the Word. And so I think one of the things that makes our ministries unique from others is that we just point people to the Word. We Amen. just point people to the Word. And once you get into the Word of God and its power begins to rock through you and you come to know this God of the Bible, 
that God of the Bible will do the doctrinal separating for you. You know, I don't need to f hit against any false Christ. It's my job just to offer the Jesus of the Bible that has Amen. profoundly changed my life. Yes. But in that <laughs> process, uh, one of the really hard things um, for Mormons to deal with is do I trust the Bible? This was huge for me. This son that had become born again challenged me to read the Bible. Just open it, read the New Testament as a child. I honestly did not trust the Bible as a Mormon. And bless my son's heart, I don't know if he knows this, but I went to the Book of Mormon looking for the red letter words of Christ, thinking I trust the words of Christ, but in the Book of Mormon first before mm -hmm. the Bible. And when I went to the Book of Mormon, third Nephi, I think it was, and realized Christ only has a few red letter words in there. Of course, in the Book of Mormon, they're not red letter. And all right. it was, was a copy of the Beatitudes right out of Matthew 5. So my brain's like, ah, if I want to hear Jesus' own words, I'm probably going to have to go into the New Testament just uh -huh. like he asked me to do. And so I began to do that. But let's talk about why someone can trust the Bible. Yeah, there are. Go ahead. I was because that's an area you've invested a considerable amount of time and attention to, yeah, is absolutely. this whole idea of biblical reliability and why we can trust it. Yes. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, absolutely. So there are there are a number of different tactics that I use when I talk to people about this, but the primary thing is when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, we want to follow Jesus in what he thinks and in what he teaches. And so when Jesus talked about the Bible, Matthew 4, 4, for instance, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus' view of the scriptures is that every word of the scriptures proceed from God, that wow. God is the source of the Bible. This is no different than... Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul says that all scriptures God breathed, that it, it is the, the exhale, the breathing out of God's, of God's intentions, of God's words, just like my words are being breathed out of my mouth right now, using that image, that metaphor, the words of the scriptures come from God. And so that was Jesus' view. So I want my view to match Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. Mormons say they're followers of Jesus. Well, their view of the Bible should match Jesus' view of the Bible, which is that every word comes from God. Or no. perhaps we have a different Jesus, and that's a whole different topic. <laughs> yes, it is. So then, if, for example, a Mormon takes the line of Joseph Smith, which Joseph Smith's reason for rejecting the Bible, according to him, and for needing to produce additional scripture was... The Bible has been mistranslated. Careless scribes, conniving priests, they have... Um, Miscopied, taken certain things out. Right. What Mormon actually says, plain and precious things have, have been, been removed. removed. Right. So then when that's raised, okay, so maybe when it was originally given, it was God-breathed, but now it's been so tampered with, it's been so corrupted... How can we know that what we have today actually corresponds to what God originally breathed out? And here's a, an argument that I often hear that comes from Mormons, but it also comes from atheists, right? Man put the Bible together at the Council of Nicaea. Oh, yeah. We that, just had somebody raise that. Yes. I was talking to a few days ago. <laughs> that man made up the Trinity, 
at the Council of Nicaea, and yet they don't know that the whole Council of God was together long before that. So why don't you talk to us about how these this word came together? Yeah, absolutely. How it all started. So, so there, there are a lot of ways that I could go with that. I think, so, and those are really two questions. So to answer right. your question uh-huh. first, when someone says to me, um, "The Bible's been tampered with, corrupted, all of those things," I typically just say, "Where?" I put the the burden of proof back on them and just say, well, can you show me where that is? Can you show me which uh, great and precious promises have been removed from the Bible? Usually, there's not going to be an answer to that because they're just parroting something that they've heard from somebody else. Right. They don't have any evidence to support that. And so I, I'm, I'm saying, hey, I, I, wanna, I, I want to, if there's been something removed from the Bible, please tell me where that is because I want to know where it is. <laughs> yeah. Right? Protect myself yeah, too. Yeah, protect me too. Like, like, do something good to help me see that. Don't just tell, but, but uh, don't just parrot something that you've been told before. Give me the evidence for that. Give me the proof. Well, no one ever gives me any proof of that because I already know the answer. I already know that there hasn't been anything removed from the Bible. We have over 6,000 manuscripts of just the New Testament Greek. Mm. We have those. We have the, the, the New Testament in these Greek copies before 1000 A.D., copied hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And so we're able to compare all of these different people. Now, there are all of these different manuscripts. Now, manuscript can be a fraction of one verse or the entire New Testament. And so we have all of these things to compare them to. And when we compare every single Greek manuscript that's been found, the differences between all of these Greek manuscripts uh, amount to less than one half of one page of the New Testament. We're, we're scholars are like, we're not really sure if this is, if this was originally written or not. And not only that, but the the, the writers of, of, let's say, the, the New American Standard or the ESV or the NIV, all of them tell you with little brackets in the footnotes, hey, this is where scholars aren't sure. So the scholars who do textual criticism um, are completely upfront and say, hey, this is, these are the, this is that one half of one page that we're not sure about. We'll tell you about it in the footnotes. And so some of those places are like the end of Mark. There's a big bracket around starting in verse 9, going to verse 20, where they're going, where scholars are like, we're not sure about this. But all ancient manuscripts have textual criticism. So it's even the, it's even Shakespeare. It's Caesar. It's Josephus, it's it's the Suetonius, it's all of these ancient writers. We have a whole bunch of, we don't have the the, uh, the autographs of any of those. We don't have Shakespeare's autographs. We have copies of copies and scholars put those copies together to create the manuscripts that we read. The Bible is the best attested when it comes to manuscripts because we have the most, but we also have the earliest. So the ones that are closest to the time of writing, we have that as well. So our earliest fragment of the New Testament from John 18 is about 25 to 35 years from the original writing. Our earliest whole book is about a hundred years after the original time writing. And the whole New Testament, we have a whole New Testament from 325 AD. So just uh, 10 years after the Council of Nicaea, we have the whole entire New Testament together in one manuscript. But we have all of the books of the New Testament before the Council of Nicaea. So to answer that question, we have all of that already that predates Nicaea. 
So it's just kind of silly for people to say that. It's 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 ahistorical. They 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 read the the the. the they read Dan Brown. They read the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> I was going to say they thought, read Da Vinci Code. And they thought, oh, well, see, the, the Da Vinci Code, that, that, I mean, that, that's got to be valid history because it's, it's written in a book. Well, come on. Yeah. It's not. It's fiction book. You don't, you don't, you don't come to your conclusions of, about reality based on fiction. And it was fascinating when the movie came out because um, our ministry tracked, because we do so much with New Testament and the challenges, when the book was gaining popularity because we made it into a movie, we began tracking all the different claims. Um, and we weren't the only ones. And it was fascinating when the movie finally came out, the movie refused to make even some of the claims of the book wow. because it had been so thoroughly refuted and disputed. I think the makers of the movie know if we try to put this in, it's going to make us look bad. Absolutely. Um, so, but then yeah, people just, just keep parroting the book. And they, right. they, they should have had more. They should have had the same brains that the, the producers of the movie had. Right? And yet the Bible itself says, come, let us reason together. Test the spirits. Absolutely. It, it invites us to continually use our brains and to research and to reason these things out, right? Absolutely. Absolutely it does. And not only that, but I mean, why would God give us a mind and say, don't do that? Right? Like, yes. you, you get people that tell you, don't research this. Hey, look the other way. They're, they're, they're hiding something from you. God has nothing to hide. Right. right. So he says, research this, look into this. And when you do, you find so much proof that the Bible is what it claims to be, the Word of God. Right. So and we have manuscript evidence. Yeah. Incredible amounts of manuscript evidence. So say something like Shakespeare or some of the other manuscripts, like you said with the Bible we have within 25 years or so. It was scrapped from 25 years after the writing of the book of John. We have entire books less than two, less than 100 years or around 100 years after they've been written in a whole New Testament, 325. So how so would that compare with, that with something like some Caesar's Gaelic ancient... Wars or Plato's writings? Yeah, so Iliad, for something like, the, like Plato, Iliad, Odyssey, all of those mm -hmm. things, we're talking 500 to 1,500 years removed from the time of writing and just a handful of manuscripts. I think the Iliad is the most, like 900 manuscripts, and they're like 1,000 years after the time of writing. It's not even close. There's, there's no ancient manuscript that's even close to the New Testament. But that's just the Greek. That doesn't include translations. That yeah. doesn't include quotes from the church fathers. That doesn't include all of the, the, the books that were used in church services, lectionaries. When you add that to the 6,000, we're upwards of 10, 20, 50,000 manuscripts. Mm. All that quote books of the Bible, as well as pottery and things on the side of buildings. When you take all of that, you push all of that together. Or that, or I'm just talking about 6,000 Greek manuscripts. When you put all of that together, we're in the tens of thousands of range now to support what this text says. So it's so it is indisputable. The, the over 99% is indisputable at this point and there are more manuscripts being found all the time. And when I started researching that, I had a moment where my brain went, wow, it's as if this God wants to be found, right? Yeah, it's amen. as if he's made all the evidence overwhelming. It doesn't even compare. There is no comparison to anything else out there. Absolutely. And so, wow, it's as if God's saying, see, see, right. I'm able to do this. I'm here. And at this point, people go, well, well, where, where's, where's faith in all of that? You know, when you got all that evidence, you know, the answer is faith is making a commitment based on the evidence. Faith mm. is not chopping your head off and then going the complete opposite <laughs> direction of the evidence. Right. That's lunacy. 
That's yeah. craziness. Oh, yes. Faith is, is being all in on the facts, the truth that you know. Yeah, I was talking with somebody who was raising some questions about just the Bible and the reliability. And so the question I asked was, well, I, what I said was, well, what I keep finding is when people finally do have the evidence in front of them, the biggest challenge isn't whether or not to accept the evidence and that it's valid. It's are they willing now to take the truth supported by the evidence and now go with that? Yeah, and do something with that. Well, that's what Jesus said, right? That's what Jesus said in, in Luke 14. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and oh. sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost? to see if he has enough to complete it. There is a cost, and that's what you're getting at. It's not the, it's not the, the evidence is not the issue. Right. It's what is this going to cost me? And that's where Jesus says, I am so much better and so much more valuable than anything you would leave behind. That's where a person has to get, and the evidence simply helps someone get there. Right, mm. and that's what faith takes you to. Faith says, okay, I'll believe this Jesus, I'll follow this Jesus, I'll commit my life to this Jesus. Amen. Because I trust that who he is and what he says is true. That's right. One of the other things that really surprised me when I read the Bible was that, so I'm a trained researcher with the doctorate, right? right. I have a number of research articles out there and I was a journal editor of a professional journal. We would research something, get a little piece of the truth, do another study, get maybe some further truth, do another study, have something that corroborates what you learned in the first study. Yep. And we do something called internal consistency. We're looking for patterns, right? Things that repeat. So I'm reading the Bible and it's blowing me away. This thing has internal consistency written over close to 1600 years, um, 66 books, 40 authors, and it's the same message, 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 message. You have mercy, you have judgment, <laughs> you know. Um, I was just blown away. My Mormon scriptures were not like that. There were wow. often um, scriptures that were exactly contradictory. One book would say one thing, another book would say the exact opposite, and yet the message here was clear and in turn and it had what we call in researching internal consistency yeah and that's one of the major tests for truth right is consistency something's inconsistent you know i would tell people if i said to you my brother is an only child you wouldn't you wouldn't like need to go home and research that. You would need to look at my family photos. You would just know instantly, like, that's not true, right? right. right. It's the same thing with the Bible. That, that's one of the other proofs that the Bible is the Word of God, is that it is internally consistent. It, you, so you don't have Peter and Paul fighting each other. You don't have Joshua and David fighting each other in their writings. That they, they are consistent. They're complementary. They cohere with each other, almost like one author wrote the whole thing and used human voice is human style, human knowledge uh, of each writer in order to convey what he wanted conveyed. And mm -hmm. that, again, is something that when you move into performance-based religion, you start seeing that the prophetic voices of these performance-based religious groups have to keep correcting prior voices <laughs> oh, my or goodness. contradicting them. 
And yet in the Bible, you never have Paul, for example, correcting Jeremiah. You don't have Peter going, well, Hosea, you know, that thing he talked about. We kind of need to know there's in fact... Jesus and the New Testament writers keep going back to the old and saying, no, this was written this for our was benefit. This is true. This is yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Mm. It is. And that is one of the most powerful, that, that when you've got the whole Bible laid out, that it, it tells the story of God being glorified in the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. A consistent message from beginning to end. It's, it, it is a powerful proof for the, uh, for the divine origin of the Bible. And yet, atheists will sometimes say to me, the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster. He killed whole groups of people, right? And yet the God of the New Testament seems to be some grace-filled, genteel man. Talk to us about that. Yeah, that, that is often said by people who have a Sunday school knowledge of the Bible who haven't read it or who've read it very shallowly um, because the God of the Old Testament is both gracious and judges sin and the God of the New Testament is both gracious and judges sin and one in the New Testament. I mean, you, how do you read the book of Revelation and say that? Right. You know, you can't. All the book of, of Revelation warnings. is full of warnings, full of, of punishment for sin. And so, I, yeah, it, it is, uh, again, when, when people say that stuff to me, I often say, Tell me, how many times have you read through the Bible? Hmm. You know, once? Have you, have you read through it once? It, it's only shaped Western civilization for the past 200 years. Did you ever, have you read it one time? Yeah, you know? from cover to cover. No, they haven't. It's, and, and those that do, they, see, there are those who will say, oh, well, you know, Paul and James, they do fight at each other. And, oh, you know, the, these guys are correcting each other. But that's where I will often say, how many classes in logic have you had? Like, I got a degree in apologetics from a, from a um, law school. And so I had to take classes on apologetics with, with logic built into that. And so how many books on logic have you read? You can tell me, tell me the a textbook definition of a contradiction. You know, yeah. and so often once that happens again, it goes right back to feelings. Well, I can't believe in a God, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah. now we, we've just shifted from logic, right? And now we're, we're back to your feelings. Okay, let, let's just make sure we know where we're at. Oh, right. and we are already at the end yeah, of our of first this episode. podcast. And so he we... only answered our first question. So we're definitely going to do a part well, two. we did two, maybe. Manuscript evidence, right? And internal consistency. I'm sorry, but... words, words tend to feel good in my mouth. I'm no, a preacher. But, so. this is, but this is good stuff. And thank you for laying it out so clearly. So can we go ahead and do a part two? Yes, Because we'll just tell our audience right now, stay tuned. Um, next podcast, we'll have part two with Pastor yeah, John. Maybe we can open talking about those feelings. I, that'd be great. Okay, so okay. let's do that. So, thanks for being with us on the Unveiling Grace podcast. Grace and peace until next time. So long. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Unveiling Grace podcast. Join us next time for another conversation devoted to helping your life and relationships flourish. As always, you can find show notes, program transcripts, and leave us your comments and questions at unveilinggracepodcast.com. For a limited time, we are offering the Wilder's book, Seven Reasons We Left Mormonism, for a donation of any amount. Go to unveilinggracepodcast.com and click on the free book button to request yours. We greatly appreciate your support for the Unveiling Grace podcast, where you can experience a grace that heals.